Well, it is a joy to see you all today and to be seen. It's a joy to have you here. If you have your Bibles with you, we will be looking at the book of Luke. We're continuing on in our series. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 will be in verses 41 to 52. What does God want you to do? What is God's will for your life? You may have heard that before, like Jesus, that you should always be about your father's business, and that is to make sure that you are on mission and working in the church. But what about our day-to-day lives? Today, what we're going to see is that Jesus always did what God, his father, wanted him to do so that he could ultimately be the savior of the world who would make us a people who do what God our Father wants us to do. But what we're going to look at a little bit today is that might be different than what you think. The background of the story is that from Matthew, and as a continuation, we know that after a little bit of time, some very important men from the east came saw a star in the sky and understood that a great king was born of the Jews and that was worthy of worship. So they packed up their stuff and traveled to Jerusalem. And naturally, if it was a king that would be born, they would go talk to the current king because they were probably expecting a secession of the kingship. And so they went and talked to King Herod about it. And so King Herod, being a little worried because he didn't know that much about this king, went to the priests and the scribes and they had them investigate the scriptures to actually determine where this king would be born. He found out it was in Bethlehem and then he tried to get these men to um, tell, to find the king and report back to him. Um, Obviously, uh, the reason for that was not good. But God... um, intervened and warned these wise men, these men, to not go back and tell Herod. So they obeyed, and they traveled a different route so that they wouldn't be seen and found by the king Herod. And so then next, God tells Joseph to take his family to Egypt because Herod was going to try to kill Jesus. So they traveled to Egypt, stayed there until Herod's death when God told them to go back to Nazareth But before Herod died, he killed all the male children in the region where Jesus was born who were under two. Two and under, I should say. And then next, there was a lull of about 10 years in in Matthew and 12 years in Luke of the history of Jesus. And this lull in history is Jesus' early childhood. We don't really know much except this for those 10 to 12 years. Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor, of God was upon him. But now we're going to enter our history and we're going to slow down from this jump of 10 years to a very short period of time, which is when Jesus is 12 years old. I'd like to read Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give careful attention to its reading. Now, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the 
feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and mother, or your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the context of this passage is the Jewish Passover. It was a seven-day feast that represented the exodus of Israel from Egypt and the salvation of Jews, but it also represented ultimately the rescue of mankind in fulfillment of the covenant blessings that God gave to Abraham some 1,800 years prior. Now, in other words, the setting of this story is the Passover, which is actually a picture of Jesus' entire life. And so, in a nutshell, God's people are in bondage to their sin and under the oppression of the world and Satan. God sends a deliverer, Moses, to rescue them, and they ultimately were rescued by the hand of God by means of the lamb that represented the covering of their sins, and so they do not have to experience God's wrath. So now let's look at our first point from verses 41 to 45. Jesus, where is he at? Where's Jesus? Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, lived lives that were dedicated to God. They obeyed God's commandments in Exodus 13 and Exodus 23 and also Deuteronomy chapter 16. They went to Jerusalem yearly to celebrate the Passover. But there's something special about this year. This year, Jesus is now 12 years old. And Jewish custom said, specified that a boy should be taken to a feast a year or two before he was 13 when he would be made what they call a son of the commandment. And he would become then an adult member of the Jewish religious community. Yes, kids, it was a different world back then. At 13, you began to be considered an adult. So, if you want to mature real fast, you know, people might consider you an adult. Anyway. So, they went up to the festival with Jesus, as was customary for the Jews, with this freshly minted 12-year-old boy. In the Talmud, a book of Jewish law and theology, it says that members of the Temple Sanhedrin, because I always wondered about this, right? Like, how is Jesus sitting around and talking with all them? So these members from the end of the morning sacrifice, the start of the morning sacrifice to the end of the evening sacrifice, they actually would come out among the people and teach and ask questions and go back and forth. And during these times, as people ask questions, they would sit on the ground surrounded by and mingling among the teachers. And this is where Jesus was. 
But as we see in our story, Mary and Joseph didn't know this. Now, Mary and Joseph had finished the customary days of the feast. Now, some say, according to Talmud, that they didn't have to actually stay all seven days. So the reality of of the Jewish world was there was all these laws and everything, and then they would kind of like try to make them a little easier to follow sometimes, or they would make them, you know, more rigid like this to to do that. And in this case, there's an understanding because you ask, well, the feast is going on and Jesus is there and Mary and Joseph leave. What happened? So some say that they only had to stay for three or four days to fulfill their obligation, okay, of being there at the Passover. So maybe that's what happened. It's hard to say. So they joined their, so then after they finished the customary days, they joined their relatives and companions who probably were all from Nazareth, this big band of people traveling together. Wouldn't that be fun? This whole bunch of us go trek somewhere for, you know, seven days. Maybe if there was robbers and stuff, it wouldn't be so much fun. But, you know, when the weather was nice and you were all caravanning together, I'm sure it was a great time. And, I, and, and in it, I think this is why we understand what's happening in the story. They travel a whole day back home and they don't have Jesus. Like, how do you say, how in the world can that happen? Imagine you have a whole day and you go and at night you're about ready to get a meal and you're like, hey, hey, have you seen Jesus? No. Have you seen Jesus? No. And they go around their whole caravan and talk to everybody and nobody sees Jesus. And they're like, uh-oh, I think we might have left our kid. So they, like any other parents, would be terrified. They had lost the Savior of the world. (laughs) Jesus, his name means Savior. They lost the Savior of the world. Now, but listen, I mean, the reality is there are probably a lot of details that you and I would like to know, right? Like, how could Jesus have not realized that everybody left? Where did Jesus stay for two nights, right? Have you thought about that? A 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem. He obviously couldn't be asleep in the temple, I don't think. Maybe he did. Um, So where was he staying for two nights? I don't know. How did he get food? Was he eating? Well, he went 40 days without food, so probably not a problem. But how in the world, then, could parents leave a city without knowing that their 12-year-old wasn't with them? Think 12-year-olds? Would that be terrifying? If, like, you got left in... You went to go visit Boston and you just, you're sitting in Boston and your parents are nowhere to be found? Anyway, the Bible, listen, brothers and sisters, the Bible just doesn't give us answers for these questions. It just doesn't. And so speculation, I could sit up here and speculate, but that doesn't help you. It doesn't help me. The reality is that it is a completely different culture. It was a completely different culture with completely different customs at a completely different time than ours. I don't think people back then would be amazed that something like this could happen, but rather why it happened. I think that's what they would be amazed by. In other words, what 12-year-old boy would spend three days talking with teachers at a temple? That's the thing I think that they were amazed by. Because, I mean, as they grouped together in these caravans and went... They had cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody else was with them, right? People from the town that they all knew. And this was a very small town. So they would expect that Jesus would just be with somebody else, right? Time to go. Word got around. Well, anyway. Mary and Joseph, they do the most natural thing that any parent would do, backtrack, to find Jesus. They spend a whole day, a whole other day, traveling back to Jerusalem, so Two days, right? A day out, a day back. 
And so now it's been two days since they've seen Jesus because he wasn't on the road to Jerusalem. So where is Jesus? And that's our second point from verses 46 to 50. Jesus is doing his father's will. Okay. It seems from the text that Mary and Joseph spent most, most of another day searching Jerusalem until they found it. I was looking at the text and trying to piece together how all the words, a wording was done. And he, they said it's been three days. It seems to me like the temple was the last place they looked. That was my take. Don't know if that's true, but it seemed like they were looking all around Jerusalem. Probably where they stayed first, probably the places that they ate, you know, all the different places that they were in Jerusalem, probably not the tabernacle, the temple. So now it's been these three days, and Mary and Joseph are looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. All the wrong places. If you didn't know where Jesus was, who was a 12-year-old at the time, where would you look for a 12-year-old? With cousins and friends his age, with his aunts and uncles and family and friends he knew, wandering on the road, looking at beautiful sights, getting in trouble in Jerusalem with all the fun things to do, right? Would you find him there? Not Jesus. Maybe regular kids, but not Jesus. No, if you knew Jesus and who he was, if you knew his life's purpose, you might say that we know that Jesus would be doing this. Whatever his father's, wherever he would be wherever his father's business took him. Or you could say, Jesus is doing his father's will. That's where you could find Jesus. So you would say, what would his father's will be? And that's where you would go to look for Jesus. The things, the reality is, in my mind, the main question of this text, and this is what I thought about and meditated on this week. The main message of the text, and I think the point of the sermon is, what does it mean that Jesus must be doing the things of his father? Now, and what are the things of the father and why does it matter? Now, here's the reality. The reality is, is as you look at your text and you look at, at, at this, this particular verse here, which is, um, he says, uh, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Actually, most translation translate as house, but it actually says, I must be about my father's, the things of my father. That's actually a literal translation of the Greek. I must be about the things of my father. The story tells us that they're in the, he's in the temple. So the things, they make a jump and say, well, it must be the temple. That's the way they translate it. So it could be true because Jesus must be in his father's house, but actually it'd be, it's better to say, I must be doing the things of my father. Now, the things of Jesus' father at age 12, what, what would a 12-year-old be about? What would the father want a 12-year-old who was a perfect man, the second Adam, to do? Isn't that the question? What is a, 12, a perfect 12-year-old to do? And that question, that answer is exactly what Jesus did being among the teachers of the law, listening to their teaching, and asking them questions. His work as a child was to come to know God's law, getting to know his father better in his humanity. This is actually the job of every one of you, both young and old. Every one of you. 
Later in his life, Jesus was so concerned about his father's honor and will that he actually overturned tables to those who were buying and selling in the temple courts. This is how serious Jesus takes the temple. Jesus' heart was his father's heart. His father wanted the temple to be a house of prayer for the nations, and to Jesus, that's what the temple was, a house of prayer. Now, we can only imagine that after a long journey, a feast, being gone from your home for over a week, you would, as parents, want to get home to get back to your routine. Probably even as kids, but not, but not Jesus. No, Jesus saw life as designed to be doing whatever his father wanted him to do. And so Mary and Joseph and all their relatives completed the feast, doing everything required of it. But Jesus saw Jerusalem being in his father's temp temple and learning about and conversing about God as the whole point of his entire early childhood. His parents eventually find him and they're astonished, they're amazed. Jesus was sitting there in the middle of the teachers, listening to them and asking them incredible, probably searching questions. A 12-year-old boy who's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with these priests who studied the word all their life. This is why everyone who heard Jesus ask questions, interact with him, said he, it, they were amazed. Jesus understood the law, I think, and in particular, possibly, he understood the meaning of the atonement and the sacrifices and everything that was going on in the Passover. And my guess is he was asking questions related to the Passover and its application and implication for the future of Israel and everything else like that. I can only imagine that those are the things he's talking about because that's the context he's in. I don't think he's just randomly asking stuffs about how many angels can dance on the heads of a pin, right? I, don't, I think he's asking questions about the, 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 the feast and what's happening and what they think about it and what he thinks about it. And so, penetrating and wise questions, which is why I think everybody was amazed. Because you would not expect a 12-year-old to ask a penetrating and wise question like that. They can, but you wouldn't expect that as a normal behavior. Now, imagine the scene with me. Mary probably runs up to him, throws her arms around him, and asks him why he would put her and Joseph in such a terrible place of distress and anxi or anxiety. Probably both amazed and upset at the same time, speaking in a frantic tone and even a quivering voice. Can you imagine three days without your kid? You lost him. Now, doesn't this sound like something you or I have said at one point or another to our children, if you've ever kind of lost them for a small amount of time, hopefully, only small, and hopefully you've never lost your kid? But where in the world have you been? We've been looking all over for you. We were worried to death. How could you run off without telling us like that? Isn't that what we would say? I think the, 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 the language that we see Mary saying is pretty much that. That's how we would paraphrase it in today's world. That's what she would have said. Because that's what every parent would have said. But Jesus responds with something that is incredibly jarring. I think he probably looked at Mary and looked at Joseph and legitimately asked them why they didn't assume that he would be in the temple. I think that's Jesus' question was legitimate. Like, well... Wouldn't you expect that I would be in my father's house? He, kind of like this. You, knowing, having been given the prophecy 
that I'm the son of God, the savior of the world, the Messiah, wouldn't you expect at the Passover that I would be in the temple, the place where God meets with his people and I would meet with my father? Wouldn't you think that I would spend as much time as I could with my father while I'm here? I think that was a question. I don't think he was being hateful. I don't think he was being pejorative. I, don't th- I think he was legitimately saying, you had the prophecies. You knew exactly what the angel Gabriel said to you. You had all of these things. You heard, and remember our story, right? Zechariah, his prophecy, right? You had Anna talking about it. You had, was it Simeon talking about it? You had all these people talking about these things. And Mary, by the way, earlier in the passage, treasured these things up in her heart. So Mary should have known, I think. So Jesus' response to his troubled and finally relieved parents is that it is natural and to be expected that he, a supernatural born child, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would be completely absorbed in the purpose and work that his father had given them, him. To Jesus, his life was the mission of his father. And to which, of course, he completely agreed with this mission. Jesus was so focused on his father's mission, on his father's will, that everything else around him was of little consequence. Food, sleep, whatever. It's all about the father. It's all about what the father wants. To Jesus, the temple, the place where humanity finds atonement for sin, some 20 years from this date would be where he gives himself up to be crucified and killed on a Roman cross at the Passover. Because there is one Passover that is ultimate, and that is the Passover when Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins so that we could receive atonement. That is the exodus of Israel. And brothers and sisters, that is your exodus and my exodus. Escape from the world, flesh, and the devil. Now, I believe that Jesus not only understood that this at his age, but was absorbed in, all, in his, all of his life in preparation for that event. The things he was doing in the temple, the question he was asking in the temple, were all in preparation for his Passover. And so what more could there be in life for him than communion with God in the temple that is a place of prayer and communion? This was the place where Jesus knew that he should be. This was the place where Jesus needed to be. So to Jesus now, that he's becoming a son of the commandment, having reached the age of 12, being old enough to come to Passover and fulfill the commandments that a Jewish man was obliged to, he is now singularly bent upon what he responds to his parents as seen in the original language, which I mentioned before. It is necessary that I be in the things of my fathers. That's a literal word-for-word translation of the Greek. In other words, my duty is to be doing what my heavenly father, my true father, has commissioned me to do. Jesus is to be about his father's business or work. And you know how we say that? The same way we say in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his people to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your what, is, what does he say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we might say will. What's the Father's business? The Father's business is the Father's will. 
So to Jesus, the carefree fun and joy of being a child was not his purpose or mission. These things were not his concern. Running around Jerusalem, having a great time, chilling out with his friends, that was not his concern. He knew his life was designed as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which as the second Adam was his reasonable service of worship, which we are, it is for us as well. You see, Jesus sacrificed his entire life to be on his father's mission every day of his life. Now, we see here in Luke that Jesus is living out a sacrifice of self in a way, an absorption of his will into his father's. He was the anointed one who was wholly and completely consecrated to God. And this shows us his active and passive obedience. Actively obeying God and whatever he's doing, doing all for God, passively doing that. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and he knew it. He is living in light of this at the age of 12. Some might say, brothers and sisters, that the moral of this story is that we should do what Jesus did and sacrifice our lives to the will of our God and that we should be about our Father's business with urgency, self-forgetfulness, and intensity like Jesus. I'm going to nuance some things here, so I need you to listen to everything I'm saying. But that can be moralism. And the reality is that you are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. You and I will never merit, we will never earn anything by being as serious as possible, as serious as a heart attack, about always doing your father's business. You will never earn God's favor by being about God's business all the time. That is not how you get the favor of God. To take the life of Jesus that was given as a sacrifice, wholly dedicated to God, and say that this is what we must do, does not seem to be the whole picture that the Bible gives us. Paul tells us that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Absolutely. God tells us that we are allowed to marry, though, that we are allowed to enjoy food and drink. We are allowed to work, and we are to be about the things that every other human is about. Underneath it, however, we are to do it for the glory of God by enjoying and living our lives for our Father. Now, don't hear me say, though, that we should not be about our father's business. I'm not saying that. We should be about our father's business. But the father's business for you and me and the father's business for Jesus are completely different. Jesus was a sacrifice for sinners. He lived a life of sorrow and a misery, a life acquainted with grief and pain. Our life is to be lived as a disciple of Jesus. Yes, taking up our cross. But we are to love God, love others, and make disciples. We are to do our work to the glory of God, always keeping his commandments by loving God and loving others, living out his love in a community of Christ followers, and living it before a watching world, letting our light shine for them. But we should also always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, as Peter says. So please hear what I am saying. We aren't Jesus but we are his disciples. We don't die for others and live a life of misery and pain so that others can be saved. Rather, we live out the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, living by God's ethics, living by God's commandments, not the world's, being willing to pay the price when needed for following Jesus and living in love for others at the cost of ourselves. 
Our business is to live our lives in God, for God, because Christ lived his life at the expense of his own ease and glory. You see, Christ's expense is for our behalf so that we can do these things not to save people, because we don't do that, Jesus does, but to tell them about Jesus so Jesus can save them. You see, we should not try to intentionally suffer because we think that that's what God wants for us, right? It's not that God won't ask, might not ask us to suffer. He, he does. Jesus tells us that. But we don't, like, try to find it. We don't look for suffering and be like, well, I got to be like Jesus, so I got to find suffering. As we love and follow God, there will be a cost. And yes, it is suffering. I'm not minimizing that. But what I want to maximize is what Christ did. You see? I want to maximize the work of Christ. Don't make Christ's life and work cheap by assuming that our lives can be what Jesus' was. No. Our life is only a faint representation of his. It is a representation but it's faint. We are made in Christ's image. So what's the bottom line here? Should we forgo our relationships with our spouses or children and say, I must be about my father's business? No, our business is to be a child of God and to keep his commandments, which is to love your spouse and care for your children and love others, you see? God's commandments tell us to work and make money to provide for our families God's commandments tells us to live righteously before others, and God's commandments tell us to live a balanced life. So if I pour out all my life for the church and don't love my wife, I'm not being holy or righteous at all. Can you see that? That's why we have to separate us from Jesus. Jesus had to give everything and pour everything out we have to pour everything out for God in the context of what we have as a whole. The reality is that we are to be about our Father's business, but our Father's business for us is different than Jesus's. Jesus's life was given as a perfect atonement for us so that we could live in love for God and love for others. We are to live a balanced life, though, being about the work of our Father that is balanced with church, family, and work. Finally, the last point is, verses 51 to 52, Jesus is the perfect man. Notice after all this in these verses that Mary and Joseph didn't really understand things completely, and they couldn't have. Do you know why they couldn't understand it? I thought about this and meditated on this week. If they did, they could never have raised Jesus as a normal child. Do you understand that? If you were raising the king of the universe and you had that in your mind like that, would you ever give him a command? I, I wouldn't. I'd be like, dude, I'm not telling the king of the maker to, to do something. So as parents, they had to have, in a sense, that veil to them. Do you understand what, you see what I mean? Or else they wouldn't have been able to function as parents. I, I don't know if they ever told Jesus to clean his room. I don't know. I can't tell. If that's a sin, then no. But if it's not a sin to have your dirty room, then maybe. I don't know. I'm sure he was ordered and wouldn't do such a thing. Kids, be like Jesus, your parents would want to say. But I don't know. You know, we don't know those things. You know what I mean? We don't have details like that. But what does it mean to be king of the universe and a child? 
What would you be told by your parents or not told? It's too complex for us to understand. So if the only thing they thought about was the fact that he was the eternal God, the Christ of God, how could you even say, hey, Jesus, it's time to eat dinner? You'd be like, well, he must be doing something important. I'm not going to interrupt him. You see, right? <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking as a parent. Um, if they lived like that, Jesus wouldn't have had all the experiences he did, and he wouldn't have been able to understand your child. Kids, Jesus understands being your age because he was your age. And when he was busy doing something, probably, or hanging out with his friends, he would have heard, hey, come and get something to eat. And he would have had to obey right away. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your struggles. He understands what it's like to have to be given commands and do them. And this passage even tells it to us. Jesus was there with the teachers, and his parents are like, hey, it's time to go. And it says he subjected himself to them. That's the word it uses in the original language, subjected. Like the king of the universe subjected himself to his parents saying, it's time to leave the temple. And he's like, well, don't you know it's about my father's business, but I'm going to obey you and listen to you. That was because he was the perfect man. And that is what we see. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, the humilities of this life, so he could love and understand us. And so we see that Jesus simply listened to his parents, subjected himself, went back to his earthly father's house instead of being in his heavenly father's house. Jesus lived in subjection to his parents even though he was king of the universe. He willingly became a servant, emptying himself of his glory so that he might rescue us from our bondage to sin. And Jesus did this because he is God's Passover. So what do we see in these last two verses of our section? It's what we call in the Bible an inclusio. It's an inclusio with verse, the first and second story in chapter 2. Verse 19 and verse 40. Just like in verse 19, when Mary heard the shepherd's statements, she didn't quite understand what to do with them, and so she said she simply locked away it in her heart, wondering what was to become of Jesus, the Savior of the world. She does the same thing with this story. Mary locked this story away in her heart. Then, just like verse 40, the rest of Jesus' teenage years and adulthood are characterized by him with growing up with the wisdom and power of God, increasing in wisdom and, in a sense, physical power. But more than this, it, he shows himself to be the perfect Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world as he increases in favor, grace, with both God and man. In other words, he does nothing wrong, always does what is right. Both God and man see him as an exceptional and perfect human. That's what verse 52 tells us. This closes out our story of Jesus' birth and growing up, and it will lead directly into his ministry and ultimately tie in the two stories we have been tracking. And you know what they are? John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist is great, but Jesus is greater. John the Baptist comes to prepare the world to meet Jesus, and Jesus will save the world. So I want to conclude by saying this. Isn't one of the most complicated questions of the Christian life, what is God's will for my life? Most Christians want to be doing God's will. For some, like myself, this might mean that it's full-time ministry. For some of you kids, perhaps. But for others, this means something com di completely different. Here's what I want you to get out of this. The reality is that you should be doing God's will. You should be doing what God wants you to do. 
After all, that is what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? But you are not Jesus. Your job is to live as a resurrected child of God who has rivers of living water flowing out of you in the position you are in with the skills and the gifts that the Spirit has given you. In your jobs, in your families, with your neighbors, with your, the people you interact with. <laughs> love God first. Love others as yourself. And be a part of Jesus' mission to make disciples. But, brothers and sisters, do not confuse yourself with Jesus, the Savior of the world. Live in love to God, in love to others, and making disciples while you take care of your families correctly, do your jobs well, have fun and enjoy life and recreation well, and do it all to the glory of God. If you are seeking some mystical will of God that is a lot more complicated than that, you've probably missed the whole point of your life, which is just to live it for God and do the best you can where you're at while you shine the light of Jesus in all that you do, being ready always to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Father, you are good and glorious. You are great and wise. You are good and perfect. And we delight in you. We ask that you would lead us and guide us. Help us to follow your will. And help us to be led by your spirit. We thank you and we ask that you would guide us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.